My guest for the day grew up in Madison, the child of migrant farm workers with a goal to educate their children to bring them out of poverty. Now, she has lived up to the expectation and has gone beyond as she has found success in policing the deputy mayor position as well as president of the Madison School Board. I'm Ben Brown and this is the Madisonian Podcast. Gloria Reyes first came on my radar when she ran for school board about three or four years ago. The school board is a place of great importance to me and the city as it affects my education. Naturally, I felt an inclination to talk to the president of the school board because I knew that is a role that constitutes a strong, well-spoken, amazing person. Looking further into Gloria's work, I soon found out that she is taking on the role of CEO at Briarpatch Youth Services, a well-known nonprofit in Madison focused on assisting at-risk youth. Now please enjoy my interview with Miss Gloria Reyes. I was born in Watoma, Wisconsin. Uh, Watoma is about, what, an hour, two hours from Madison, north of Madison. Um, and uh, my parents were migrant farm workers. People always ask me, what were you doing in Watoma, Wisconsin, of all places? Um, and uh, my parents were migrant farm workers, so they traveled uh, with the seasons. And so my siblings are born in different states, um, depending on where they were at the time. Um, and so they traveled Texas, um, you know, California, um, and Wisconsin was one of their one of their summer months stops where they would uh, travel and work um, in the fields. Uh, and um, it was during the the Cesar Chavez movement. Uh, it was during that times in the early seventies uh, when I was born. Uh, and Cesar Chavez um, at the time was fighting for better uh, wages and living conditions for migrant farm workers across the country. And so um, protests were happening and um, my parents describe it as, you know, protesting um, from Watoma. Uh, people would come from Watoma, Wisconsin to protest at the Capitol and here in Madison. And so when they got here, um, they just fell in love with uh, downtown Madison. Um, uh, they talk about how it felt to walk down State Street and walk on Bascom Hill. And uh, my, my dad, um, my parents felt that this was a, a place for, um, that was um, focused on education really. And, um, you know, always emphasized how education was going to move us out of poverty. And so, um, they a couple of years later they ended up moving here uh, and so with the help of of at that time there was a lot of support for migrant farm workers to settle um, and um, a lot of support from agencies like UMOS which is United Migrant, migrant Farm Workers um, Association and Centro Hispano of Dane County uh, and other organizations that help support my family uh, stay uh, in Madison and Urban League of Dane County also um, helped out. And so 
um, they talk about those early years settling in Madison where there was very few Latino families here at the time. Um, and so, but a lot of uh, support uh, in networks to, um, to get them to settle here. They um, had a third, both had a third grade education level, so never finished high school. And they were able to get support from Urban League um, of Dane County and Centro Hispano uh, to um, get their high school uh, GEDs. My mom ended up becoming a uh, nursing assistant uh, and so she got her nursing assistant certification and my father uh, became a welder. And so he got certified as a welder. Uh, and uh, so they both were able to get um, sustainable jobs and opened up a lot of opportunities for us here in Madison. Yeah. So do you remember kind of what your education was like or, or what kind of student you were in, in elementary school and middle school? Yeah, you know, I struggled a lot. Um, my um, uh, English was my second language. And so we predominantly spoke Spanish in the household. Uh, and at that time, when I entered, uh, started school here, um, I didn't speak uh, English and I didn't have uh, the resources that I needed um, to help, right? They didn't have uh, bilingual resource specialists like we do have today. And so, um, my parents were told that the, we just needed to start speaking English in the home. Um, they, um, I did get help. I, I did get uh, held back a, a grade, um, and my siblings did too, uh, because of the um, language issues. And so um, it was really hard um, to um, start off without understanding the English language. Uh, and um, also there were times where they wanted to place uh, me in special education. And so not that there was anything wrong with special education, but my parents felt that there was, because um, I remember they pulled me out of the class room to put me in a different class and where there was a smaller group of students. And my parents really wanted to make sure that we were not pulled out of the classroom. Uh, that I was not pulled out of the classroom. And so they really worked with the school and basically demanded that they keep me in the classroom. Uh, and so that there, I, that, um, uh, that they didn't want, want to pull me out. Um, but the school year after year for a while, they kept trying to pull me out into special education classes. How, how do you think your, your education would have deferred, um, if you were in, in special education or, or what, how do you think that would have affected you as a student and, and maybe your, your future? Yeah, I think it would have. I, I think at that time, we'd, uh, special education was not as it is today, uh, where we really do try to, um, you know, keep our students in the classroom, uh, provide the special needs. Um, and I, I think that my trajectory would have been different um, in that I wouldn't have, uh, had to really work as hard um, uh, to get to where I am today. Um, and being with my classmates in the classroom and, and learn from them as well. Uh, and so uh, I do believe that my uh, trajectory would have been different um, throughout uh, middle school and, and high school if I would have stayed in special education. Now, by the time I got into high school, it wasn't as bad. Um, I, I, I had 
my cousins, I had family who were in special education classes um, who did who did well, um, and I think it improved over the years. But um, it was a, it was a challenge back in the early seventies. So how how when was the first time that you thought or or um, that you became interested in in a in law enforcement and in, in a potential future in in law enforcement? Yeah, you know, I I grew up on the northeast side of Madison, and I remember as you know as a kid, uh, police officers coming into our neighborhoods and uh, just only to make an arrest or, um, you know, conduct a search warrant. And um, they would speed into our neighborhoods and I would I'd watch them take somebody away. Um, you know, that really sparked the early, um, uh, the early perspective of law enforcement and how they were not as friendly. Uh, they were very disrespectful um, uh, to us in the neighborhoods. and. Um, it wasn't at that time so much where I said I wanted to be a police officer, but it was at a time, it was a moment for me to think about how I wanted to, um, that how they could treat us differently. And, um, and so after years of, you know, watching my dad get pulled over by police and being disrespected, um, and talking about those experiences of people of color, and my neighbors um, who were black, you know, Asian and, and our perceptions of police that really motivate, motivated me. I, I really wanted to enter the profession to change the profession and how we treat our communities of color. Uh, and so I wanted to be more community policing oriented. Um, I wanted to build trust in relationships uh, to prevent crime and to treat people with respect um, and to bring some legitimacy to uh, policing uh, that I thought had uh, been lacking for years. And so um, it was more of a, yeah, I wanted to serve my community in that perspective, but I felt that um, I wanted to be a part of change. And that's why I entered um, law enforcement. Um, however, every time I talked about wanting to become a police officer, people, uh, people would always tell me, you can't become a police officer. You know, Latinas don't um, are not police officers, um, and um, you're too little. You can't be a police officer. So I listened um, to people for way too long growing up that yeah, maybe I can't be a police officer. But uh, I ended up um, jumping in, um, uh, and I actually um, was thinking about. I remember recalling, well, if I can't be a patrol officer on the street for the Madison Police Department, maybe I'll, I'll apply for the FBI. And at that time, um, I um, asked a, a colleague of mine who I went to college with, um, who became a police officer. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about the FBI. And he said, he referred me to um, talk to uh, Sergeant Koval, who was our, uh, our Madison Police Department chief. And um, but he was a sergeant in the training department at that time, but he worked in the FBI. And so I sat down and asked him uh, questions about his experience um, in the FBI. And he really recruited me for the Madison Police Department. And I think he was one of the few people in my life who said, 
you would be a great Madison police officer. You're exactly um, the type of person we're looking for. Um, he said, please consider applying. Um, and so I did. And um, I was able to um, go through the academy. My parents were a little concerned um, that I was entering this profession that they um, were not um, supportive of at first um, because of the way they were treated by police officers in the past. Uh, but we overcame that. So what 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 was kind of the training to get into policing and and kind of tell me about your overall experience in law enforcement and and yeah yeah the training was great i mean i you know um it was hard uh i think um what i didn't think about was um you know carrying a firearm uh and training to be training to carry a firearm and to have to use deadly force at some point in my career. And I think throughout my, uh, my career, that was something that I always knew that um, it would be a, a, a responsibility of mine and that I would, it, I could be in a situation where I'd have to use deadly force. And that was the hardest thing um, throughout my career. I remember in the academy when um, I started um, firearms training um, my hands were really small, are really small. And um, you, my, the, the gun that we're given, it was the gun, the gun that we were um, given was really big and I just could not reach the trigger with my hands. And so um, it was at that moment in time when I was at the fire range where I thought, oh, I guess maybe I can't do this job. Every, all this time people were telling me that I'm too little, uh, that maybe, um, yeah, maybe I can't, but uh, I remember, um, my training officers at the time kept me after at, in the range after, um, a session and had my classmates leave. They said, what's going on with your shooting? And, um, I said, you know, uh, I don't know, well, let's see what you're, what you're doing. And so, uh, they watch my every move, like from taking my gun out of the holster, um, and then position, positioning my hand. But what would happen is I, in order for me to, um, to reach the trigger, I'd have to move my hand to reach it. And, um, then my bullets would go everywhere. And so they're like, why are you moving your hand? I said, cause I can't reach the trigger. And, um, it was just really, um, and so I just had to practice. I had to practice. I spent a lot of time at the range, um, and practice on how to shoot, um, that way. And so, um, but I made it through, I think, um, that was not my least favorite part of the academy. I think the um, the um, learning how to interact, the cultural competency piece of the academy, the um, you know professional communications um, were areas where I thrived and where uh, I felt I was more at ease. But uh, working uh, or you know training on their shooting range was not my best. Um, uh, it, it wasn't my best thing to do. And because I think I, it was an overall sort of sense of concern of, and re, of responsibility of uh, having a firearm and having to shoot the firearm and, and um, you know, having my small hands and having to practice. And, and so that was the, that was the hardest part of the Academy for me. Yeah. So I guess my question is whatever year that was, did they have any type of training or, 
during the academy on on race uh and 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 bias at at all at that time at that time uh, they did but it wasn't as um extensive right it was a part of the training and so um that's why you know throughout my career i really tried to um to really think outside the box around training officers around racial equity and implicit bias and cultural competency, um, which in fact I do now, right? It, that's what I, I do is I, I train um, uh, officers uh, around racial equity, implicit bias, cultural competency. Um, it's called my badge of equity training. And, um, and so it is a, um, I, I felt that it wasn't enough and it's still not enough. I think we have to incorporate um, race, um, uh, racial equity training within everything we do in law enforcement. Uh, we need to infuse it at every point of decision-making, um, just like we do in firearms and tactics. And it's got to be elevated in a, uh, as a priority, um, just like we do with firearms and tactics. And it's, it's much more, um, because it's in few, it's much more than just learning how to shoot a gun and how to, how to tactically be safe. It is around professional communications and, and, uh, and put, you know, understanding your own biases uh, and understanding race and how uh, the power of the uniform and the power that you bring to a situation uh, when you're interacting with our diverse communities that is uh, much more important um, uh, in back then and today even more so. And so we just need to do more. We don't do enough of that right now in the law enforcement profession. Yeah. So out of the academy, what, what position did you get or, or what policing did you do? How did your career move on? Yeah. So I, um, I started as a patrol officer. So I patrolled pretty much throughout the city, uh, west side, east side, north side, um, south side. I uh, became a neighborhood officer for the south side of Madison on Badger Road and Park Street. Uh, and that was I, one of my most rewarding positions. Uh, a community police officer um, works with community, works with neighborhood associations, work with uh, uh, businesses, uh, other city departments to solve some of these complex uh, public safety challenges. And uh, that was the most rewarding uh, part of my um, my career in law enforcement. And um, so I, w- I was able to become, uh, really implement many innovative things that really made us think outside the box. Um, uh, for example, when uh, we were seeing an increased number of, of fights and disturbances among young people, um, uh, we developed, um, you know, uh, a restorative justice uh, program on the South side we uh, imp- to really stop uh, giving youth um, citations for disorderly conduct, these minor offenses, right? But more of a restorative process uh, for them to learn, right? And, um, and so it, those kinds of things were um, my way of really thinking outside the box and finding ways in which we can uh, work together as a community to solve some of these complex issues. Um, you know, we had, um, yeah, and I, I think it was just um, 
you know, we had, I started a youth in action group at West High School where we talked about um, how they felt, one of the, some of the safety, public safety challenges that they felt um, in, in their communities. And one of them being the cell transfer point was a point of, of concern um, because they felt unsafe on the bus, they felt unsafe at the cell transfer point. And so working with the city on um, uh, how do we make those places safe for our young people? Uh, and so uh, those kinds of things were really um, impactful for me professionally uh, and for the community. And so, um, yeah. And it was yeah. more of a very proactive strategies rather than reacting to uh, continually to react to crimes and situations that occur in our community. Yeah. So you ultimately um, came across a position, you, you were a detective at, at one point. How did you kind of get into that from being a patrol officer to public safety, safety to, yeah. Yeah. So detective was a really, that was something I've always wanted to do as well. Uh, and so um, I was, I went through a process and I got promoted. Um, I became a detective um, on the South side. I spent most of my years on the South side of Madison. Um, and uh, I, I worked um, sensitive crimes. I worked financial crimes. Um, and, um, then I was, I got the opportunity to work in a special investigations unit as a detective. And what I liked about the special investigations unit was it used this focused deterrence approach to, um, um, solving crime. And that was identifying people in our community who, um, who were, um, responsible for the most violent offenses in their city. And um, we brought them together and we sent a strong message and saying, you know, you have to stop the violence. You can't continue this behavior and we're willing to provide you some support. And so um, the, that part of it was something I was really invested in. So it wasn't only uh, bringing together um, people who were responsible for the crime and they were involved in, in just in deep uh, in, in criminal behavior but also saying, you know what, you have, a ch you have a chance to change the trajectory of your life and we're gonna connect you to community support systems to help you. And um, that, was, uh, that was really um, a, a great program. I think it continues, but it, it's not as strong as it used to be. Um, but um, that was really rewarding. And then um, I thought I was going to um, finish my career in law enforcement and retire from law enforcement. But um, I got a call from Mayor Paul Soglin at the time. Um, and he asked me to come work for him as his deputy mayor to public safety. And um, he had a whole host of other responsibilities, but he really used me for my uh, public safety experience uh, to help support the city around uh, uh, um, responding to public safety challenges. Right. So throughout that, your whole career in, in law enforcement, did you face any discrimination or, or microaggressions at all within the workplace or? Yeah, you know, I really, um, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, when I, um, throughout my career, I've always um, had in the back of my mind, and I always led um, through race, right? And because I knew the impact personally. 
And so, and as a woman of color, um, which is really few of us on the police department at the time, um, you know, I felt the microaggressions. Uh, I felt um, throughout the organization. Uh, and so I started a group. Um, it was at that time, a diversity inclusion uh, group of officers, and it was mainly all officers of color. And so that's where that was a space for us to talk about how we felt um, as officers of color in this within this organization that was predominantly white. And um, we also had LGBTQ um, officers um, who joined our group and we did a climate survey um, throughout the police department. And we found that officers of color felt um, they didn't feel included. Um, uh, they felt the promotional process was flawed. Um, it didn't um, help support our officers of color advance to higher level positions within law enforcement. Um, and so, and then we did identify that there had to be some additional uh, training uh, for our officers around uh, implicit bias. And um, I became part of a group um, called Judgment Under the Radar where we uh, trained our law enforcement officers around a race. And so it was again, a cadre of police officers of color who were training our, um, our own, our colleagues around race. Um, and, and so, and that was, you know, that was separate from the academy that was professional development. Uh, and so, yes, there were some challenges. Um, within um, the police department as a woman of color. Uh, but, and it was an opportunity also that I felt that um, me and other officers could change the culture um, within um, the Madison Police Department. But, you know, by the time we left, we were just getting there, right? It was just, these are systems and, and institutions that have um, that are just racist policies and procedures, right? That they just are embedded in everything that we do. And so it's hard to um, tackle those um, in, you know, a short amount of time. And so it's, it, it takes years to dismantle uh, the, the racism that exists within um, law enforcement. And then, you know, just in, in just in general, uh, in our government institutions. And so, cause they're just so embedded. And, um, and so um, we didn't go far enough, but I believe that after I left the, the work continued and the work still continues within the Madison police department, but we still have ways to go. When, when did you ultimately uh, leave, leave the department to, to go to the deputy mayor position? I think it was 2014. That's kind of around the time when 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 Toby Tony Robinson was was murdered. Um, kind of, do you remember? You know, you, you were involved in law enforcement previously, and and a part of the Madison Police Department. Do you remember what kind of your feeling was on on this this horrible attack? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I um Ferguson had already happened. Right. Uh, so I was in the mayor's office when Ferguson um uh, Michael Brown uh, in in Ferguson and so 
we, um, I was already meeting with community stakeholders about what happened in Ferguson. Um, and, uh, and then Tony Robinson happened. And so then it hit home. It really hit home for many of us. And, um, it was a, a tough, um, it was a tough time for everyone. I think for me, being someone in law enforcement and understanding the uh, intricacies and the complexity of a situation like that, having to use deadly force um, and, you know, having it done with an unarmed young African-American male was, was heartbreaking and the community was hurting. Uh, and again, um, I felt that um, we needed to make moves to impact change. And, uh, and so I think the, the protests were amazing. Um, the amount of people who came out, students who came out to protest um, and march and, and hand in hand in solidarity uh, for this young man who, who was shot and killed um, was amazing to see in our community coming together. Uh, and we immediately, uh, the mayor, uh, myself, and, and city council leaders were all um, at a place where we need to um, make some decisions here and impact change. And so that's when we started the Madison Police Department um, uh, Community um, Review Committee, uh, Citizens Review Committee. And um, they just finished their work. I mean, it took them years to actually finish this work, but we hired a consultant to come in to review the Madison Police Department, uh, to review their policies and procedures. And eventually the committee made recommendations to the mayor and the council on what they wanted. And so um, we are just seeing the benefits of that, right? And so um, the oversight committee has just started their work. Uh, that was one of the recommendations. and. Uh, I work closely with the consultants who were reviewing the Madison Police Department. Um, so actions were taken based on the incident um, and, uh, uh, you know, the death of Tony Robinson. Um, and we, we've seen progress, but yet we still have a ways to go, right? And so we're seeing progress. Um, but I still think for me that although we have... Um, Look, reviewed policies and procedures and looked at the training, I still don't feel um, that we're leading through race. Um, I, I strongly feel that um, we can change all the policies and procedures that we want, but if we are not uh, looking and understanding how race plays a role in the decision-making of an officer, um, then we, we just won't get to where we need to be. Right. Uh, and so race has to be the focus and the focal point of everything that we do. Um, it should be in every conversation that we have. And um, and so the it touched the, the it definitely touched on that, you know, on the surface. We talked about it, about having more interactions with our our communities of color um, and how do we build police legitimacy. But. I still don't feel like we are um, leading with race and, under, and really emphasizing that we have to get through um, and understand racial equity in, in, this, in, in the law enforcement profession.
Yeah. So, I mean, you went to the deputy mayor position. Um, what did you kind of ultimately work on in that position and, and just, yeah. Yeah. So I, um, was in that position and, um, I oversaw the racial equity initiative as well while I was in the city. Um, so we made some, um, huge strides in that and really, um, setting up the infrastructure. Um, and we had some great employees who, who were leading that effort, uh, throughout the city, uh, government, uh, structure. And, um, you know, but most of my time was really, uh, was responding to uh, public safety challenges. Um, uh, I was, you know, we had a situation where we did, um, we built a housing first development on the west side of Madison, where um, we seen an increase in uh, calls for service, calls for police service, shots fired, domestic violence incidents, uh, disturbances. Um, it was the tree lane property out there and the mayor assigned me to um, figure out what, what was happening, what, ne what we needed to do uh, to respond to um, the challenges um, out over on Tree Lane. And um, so I felt like I was back in my um, uh, my neighborhood officer role, uh, working with the neighborhood associations, working with residents, working with businesses uh, to proactively respond to the needs of the community and to reduce the calls for service and ensure the safety of our residents, both um, within uh, you know, the housing development and then also uh, in the neighborhood. And so um, I believe we made some, some great strides um, on that. Um, we also had an increased calls for um, or violence in our community where um, we had um, shots fired, uh, we had um, stolen vehicles um, and we, um, we responded with a group of people. We worked with uh, community residents like the Focus Interruption Coalition and other residents and community organizations to respond to, um, to this violence. And, um, and so that brought up the Opportunity Youth uh, Coalition where we developed a mentorship program um, uh, for youth. Um, who were involved, uh, who were justice-involved youth, and uh, um, and so that's still going on. It's very successful. Um, we every time we talk to a youth at the juvenile reception center, um, we or in other locations, boys and girls club, they all said that they wanted a mentor who could uh, relate to them, somebody who looked like them, somebody who they could trust. Uh, to help support them. And so uh, that's why we started this mentorship program. And um, we started this crisis response, um, focus interruption coalition response to shootings uh, where we had um, former incarcerated uh, men who, men and women who would respond uh, after an incident um, and provide support to uh, the families who were impacted by the violence um, in the neighborhood and the residents uh, and respond um, by providing services to them. And so, um, yeah, so most of my time was really around public safety. Um, and then I, it, for a short time there, I, 
I served as interim director of Department of Civil Rights as we were moving through a, a transition um, in, within that unit. So, yeah. Yeah. So kind of what was your decision to switch gears a little? I, I You were working a little there with, with juveniles, um, but uh, switch gears kind of into education. And ultimately, what was your decision to run for school board? Yeah. So I served as I was uh, the mayor's also, I, I was also the mayor's education liaison. And so I served on the city's education committee. And so I had been meeting with um, the superintendent of Madison schools, the, the, you know, the chancellor's office in um, the school of education at the university. And um, as you know, from my background, um, you know, education was, was the focus, right. That my, my dad, my parents, kept talking about was going to take me out of poverty. So I understood that uh, education is the, it's the equalizer. It opens up doors for, for people. Uh, and so moving through my entire career, um, I understood how educa education was so important. And, um, and then in my role as uh, deputy mayor and being his liaison to education, I, I, clearly saw that education was uh, the foundation of a city's success, right? That is the foundation. We need to invest in education. And so um, I, you know, there was an open seat coming up on the school board and uh, I decided to jump in the race. Uh, I felt that we didn't have a voice, um, uh, a much needed voice that I brought uh, to the table um, on the on the school board at that time. And so I decided to jump in the race. I ran it against um, an incumbent um, and was able to win um, successfully. And um, so I've been serving. I served uh, my one term. Um, I became president almost um, like a year after uh, my first year on uh, and been the president's um, most of my term on the school board. And so I felt that, um, yeah, I think that's why I ran because I felt that we just, I, there wasn't a voice that was needed that I thought I could bring and experience on the school board. Yeah. So do you feel in your term on the school board that you were able to, or have been able to address the things that, um, you're most passionate about or the issues that you're most passionate about within our school district and our system? I think what I learned from politics is that you go in thinking you're going to do something and then <laughs> something, you know, um, I do feel that that was my experience here. Like I went in thinking I'm going to do this. I want to focus on special education. I want to focus on um, my, my focus around education was the disproportionality in identification of uh, black and brown kids in special education. And, um, and then I wanted to um, focus on safety in our schools um, and then um, also innovation in the classroom. And so um, I believe the innovation in the classroom, the district was moving towards um, public safety, however, um, I always felt that law enforcement officers played a critical role in the public safety um, of our schools. And, um, but um, after um, George Floyd um, in Minneapolis, 
um, and the marches and the 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 unrest after that happened, right? And the shock of our country um, in our cities across the country and here locally of seeing that happen um, impacted me too. Like um, it made me think like, you know, where are we as a profession and why are we, why do we continue uh, down this route? And um, we have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do. And um, I felt that um, protesters came to my house. Um, I don't know if you saw that, but protesters came to my house and um, they um, have at, were asking for years throughout my time on the school board to take officers out um, out of our schools. And you know, Freedom Inc. was very active at our school board meetings. They were active even before I got on the school board um, to take officers out of our schools. And it wasn't until, um, you know, um, uh, George Floyd, where um, the board, I saw the board sort of change and like, we really have to make this decision, right? This is, this is a critical turning point for us. And even though I still feel that those officers were our officers of color who played a critical role in building trust and relationships with our young people, and oftentimes just de-escalating situations. I felt that we had two institution, which, institutions, which is our education system and our law enforcement system, both with um, huge, um, long history of uh, racial um, disparities and racial um, injustices within both systems that I felt that um, we really have to figure this out without law enforcement in this space. Uh, and in, in talking to many people who were asking at that time um, on both ends, right? Keep officers in schools, you know, take them out. Um, that I, the board came to the point of, we need to, um, we need to take them out and we need to figure out how we make our school safe. And so when I, when I say that being a, an elected official and in politics, you think you're gonna do something, but the community really decides. And as an elected official, um, you have to listen to what the, the needs of our community. And so I had to set aside my own personal and professional beliefs around the direction of what public safety looks like in our schools and listen to the people who are crying for, um, for help in asking us to remove officers in schools. And the school board was le was going in that direction anyway. Like we had majority of school board members who wanted officers out of our schools. And so um, that, so I, I bring that up because of your question of like, what did, what I, what did I aim to do? Um, and oftentimes um, what you aim to do as an elected official um, is not always what the community wants. And um think good leaders and good, you know, and effective uh, elected officials listen to uh, the community. And um, yeah, that's what I had to do. Yeah. So tell me about the opening at, at Briar Patch and, uh, in the CEO position and, and why that was something that you, you were interested in and, um, 
uh, just a little bit about what you guys do. Yeah. So, um, see, um, Briar Patch is, um, you know, I worked uh, closely with Briar Patch when I was an ABWID officer and, um, you know, throughout my career in law enforcement. And uh, we focus on our most vulnerable youth in our community, um, mostly our black and brown uh, youth um, who are in LGBTQ. Um, so we have a homeless shelter uh, and we have a runaway homeless youth program. Uh, we work with our justice involved youth uh, who um, are under supervision um, through the county um, to work off, um, you know, some community service that they need and, and provide them support. We provide parent and family support uh, as well. And I thought it was a really good fit at this time. As I transition out of um, my role as an, uh, as an elected leader um, on the school board, and, um, you know, I felt that my entire career was, has been focused on young people, whether it be in law enforcement or in education. And um, this was an opportunity for me to bring all that experience into this new role at Briar Patch that does some wonderful work uh, with our most vulnerable children in our community. And, um, and me being, um, you know, I, growing up in poverty, experiencing trauma, um, being homeless myself at times, I felt that not only professionally, but personally, um, uh, brings um, an opportunity to, for me to expand um, and bring to uh, uh, Briar Patch from somebody who's been there, um, both personally and professionally. Um, I thought it was just a great opportunity that came up. Um, and uh, Briar Patch does some great work. It's a very quiet organization, but uh, does amazing work within our community in Dane County. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a big issue and question that I have um, and many others have, I mean, it's the idea of defunding the police or reallocating funds from the police to community services organizations like Briar Patch. Um, is that something that you would be in support of and, and tell me about kind of what that will look like locally here, maybe? Yeah. I mean, you know, people, people do not like the term defunding police. Right. You know, I remember having a conversation with a young person at one of the marches this past summer, um, after George Floyd and, um, uh, you know, asked me the same question about defunding. And I said, well, I, I want, I want to invest, I'm sorry. I want to invest in, um, community organizations, um, to be more proactive, right. And support young people. Uh, but, um, and yes, you know, and so he was telling me, he was like, well, that's defunding police. And I'm like, well, I don't want to completely defund police. I think we have to have a police um, uh, department and invest in support uh, and provide resources for them to do their jobs, right? When people call 911 for a, um, a situation that's happening at that point, uh, depending on what it is, you may want police to respond. Um, but I do agree, we have to invest more in um, uh, proactive strategies, preventative strategies um, and programs. And so um, we can do both. 
it's I don't see it as an either or. And um, so I think we just have to really manage our budgets in a way in which, yeah, do we want to invest in a mental health um, officers, right? Be, do we want officers to be mental health officers? I think that if we have an officer who has mental uh, experience as a social worker or a mental health professional, then that's great, you know, but um, do, do they play the role of mental health, you know, professionals? No, we want pro mental health professionals. We want to invest in mental health professionals. Um, but like I said, I don't, I, I don't see it as an either or. And, um, but I think that taking a closer look at our city budgets and our county budgets to see where we can reallocate funding uh, to support community organizations, um, I think it's important, but I don't see it as an ex, you know, as an, as the expense of taking funding away from uh, police departments. I don't see that. Yeah, how has your various work been affected by the pandemic? And and, and I guess could you go a little bit into what your feeling was as as the president of the school board when you saw this this looming global pandemic about. 12 months ago. Yeah, it was, um, it was uh, interesting times. Uh, it was around February, at the end of February, I was like, okay, something's happening. Um, March, um, we had at that point an interim superintendent. Um, so we were moving through a superintendent search also. And um, I remember uh, meeting with uh, our interim superintendent, Jane Belmore at the time, along with her leadership team and and let, telling them, oh, we're going to have to close schools. Like, it's not a matter of um, if, right? It's a matter of when, and we have to make the decision like soon. And this was right before spring break, I believe, um, when we had um, moved spring break up a week um, to give us a week. And so, which I thought it was a wonderful idea, um, mm -hmm. thinking that, okay, maybe give us a week or a couple weeks and we'll be back. Right back. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. Right. And so, um, and so it was an, it was an interesting time of crisis. Uh, no doubt about that. I think um, in our community and within the district, but we had to transition from, um, from in-person to virtual and made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, we had, we learned a lot, right? We learned that we learned about the digital divide in our city that, you know, they're unequal access to, um, to, you know, technology um, and wireless communication, right? We, we, it, that it uplifted that so many disparities um, uh, and inequality had elevated in many different ways through health, through, you know, in education. And we had to respond to all of it. Uh, we had to provide um, computers for um, our, our students um, and wireless um, internet. Um, and we, we were coming up with thinking outside the box in many different ways to respond to situations. But what was amazing was all the people within our school district who came together to do jobs that not necessarily were their jobs, right? They just came in and did what they needed. Um, teachers who, um, who learned this whole virtual world 
um, to teach their children and, you know, made mistakes along the way, but continue to just be resilient and stay in there and, and support our children was phenomenal to see. Our community who came together, um, who delivered meals, who um, um, every day out there interacting and, 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 and being very safe, but making sure that our families had food uh, and the basic needs taken care of. Um, and so oftentimes in a community, uh, we, uh, we go through a crisis and uh, we're in the right in the midst of it. Um, and you see the unbelievable uh, amount of resiliency and collaboration and, and strength that we have in this community that we don't often see uh, until we're in a crisis. And so that's what I see, that's what I saw. And um, so looking back as we are moving through this, um, it's amazing to see how we have transitioned into the space of virtual world of education um, and how our community has stepped up in many different ways um, to work through this, um, this problem. Um, and so I think we're gonna be better and we're gonna be stronger together um, when we come out of this. Um, I think that it is time for us to, it's been time for us for reflection um, and to really look at the disparities that currently exist in, in many areas um, and recognizing that when we come out of this, we can't go back to how we were before the pandemic, that we have to um, use this crisis for good in that this crisis came at a point in time to show us how strong we are, how resilient we are as a community, um, and to understand the, the current disparities and the injustices that currently exist within all levels um, in, in our community and figuring out how we're going to move past it and um, elevate and support and make ourselves better um, than we were before. And I strongly feel that, but we have to move together as a community to do that because I certainly don't want to go back to how we were pre-COVID. If you would like to donate to Briar Patch Youth Services, you can click the link on the, in the description of this episode. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown. Cover art editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you're a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, just email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and keep an eye out for next week's episode. <laughs>